Good morning, church. Isn't that exciting? Isn't it great to see that? The home is completed. We are taking applications, and uh, the home has been staffed, so we have a director for the home. One step at a time, we made it through COVID and all those delays, and so here we are. So thanks to everyone who has made the recovery home for men possible, and we anticipate God's work through that important ministry in the future. You saw some uh, still photos of some of the guys who did a lot of the labor on the home, which we are so grateful for. You saw one picture there with two guys standing together. That was Mike Barnes and Aaron Gardner. And those two guys were really busy on the home. Mike uh, really served as the general contractor, and Aaron was there a lot with friends of his and associations really doing great work. I, I saw Aaron this morning at, in this service, so he's around. And so if you see him, please give him thanks. And of course, their wives, Janie and Liz, uh, suffered right along with them along the way. So great progress, great success. We're so proud of everyone for their, for their work, and we're excited about what God's going to do through the home in the future. Also wanted to give you a brief update on Bob Ball and his team in Florida. As you know, uh, we help fund uh, this 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 meat, meat smoke, smoker that they have on wheels, and they take it to these uh, disaster areas around the country from time to time. And to date, the last couple of weeks, they've served just under 20,000 meals to first responders, to families in need, uh, those folks working on the infrastructure there and the utilities and so forth. So uh, amazing stories are coming out of Florida through the efforts of people that we know and love and are supporting. So I know you feel good about that. Well, today is uh, week number 27, chapter 27 in the story. We are going through the entire Bible this year in chronological order. And today we come to perhaps the three most important days in the history of humanity. These are the days between the death of Jesus Christ having expired on the cross and the resurrection. And I want to lean into those days in this particular message. It's Friday morning, 9 a.m. They nailed the hands and feet of Jesus to the cross. Three hours later at noon, darkness came over all the land. How appropriate. Three hours later, 3 p.m., Jesus has been hanging on the cross for a total of six gruesome hours, and out of nowhere, he shouts out the most unusual question. He says in his native language, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. We can translate that from the Hebrew and the Aramaic. It's found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verse 46. If you look on the screen with me, this is the interpretation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a hymn that has uh, emerged in history that many of you have probably heard and know. Here are the first two stanzas of that hymn. Put them on the screen for you. If you will... Uh, that, that's not it. That's it. If you look at the last phrase of that first stanza, to make a wretch his treasure, we're going to sing this a cappella together. I will lead us. You will sing with me. 
if nothing else, to drown out the sound. When you get to make a wretch his treasure, just touch yourself. Are you ready? How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Where's the song from? Where's it found? Well, it's actually a, a song that was written originally by King David. We know it as the 22nd Psalm, Psalm 22. Now, let me just remind you that David lived 1,000 years before Jesus walked the earth. This is 1000 BC. David is king of Israel and he has gifts. One of his gifts is this musical ability. And so he writes music, he writes hymns. Most of the Psalms are the hymns that David wrote. And Psalm 22 is especially interesting. We also know that there was a pattern, a habit, a practice, if you will, in Jewish society. And for centuries, Jews would teach their children to memorize the law, the scriptures. And they would use a technique called remez or remez. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. The technique is simply you start the first part of a statement, the first line of a statement, and then the child hearing that would be prompted to pronounce the rest of it. For example, we can do it here. If I say a phrase, you, you finish the phrase. Are you ready? Mary had a little lamb. And everywhere that Mary went. How did you know that? If you did not know that, it means your mother has failed you. Not being harsh. She just wasn't paying attention. Because everybody learns that nursery rhyme at some point. Should. Mary had a little lamb. Yeah, we know that. And so we can, re, we, can, we can complete the sentence. We've memorized that. And the same was true with the, with the law, with the, with, the, with the scriptures in Jewish minds. So that when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in Psalm 22, verse 1. Look on the screen with me. This is Psalm 22. Recite that with me. Ready? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now note the timeline. This is Psalm 22.1. This is a thousand years. This is King David a thousand years before Jesus writing a hymn that includes the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The people standing around the cross, these Jews that day, when they heard Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would have immediately completed the next line. Look on the screen with me at Psalm 22, verse 2. Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. This would have caused the Jewish pe people who had memorized a psalm, this psalm, as a child to go deeper into the psalmist's lament. They would have 
found themselves in the petitions David had made to God. Look at verse 7 of Psalm 22. I'll put that on the screen. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Can you imagine yourself now as a Jewish person standing at the foot of the cross going, wait a minute, didn't we just do this to Jesus? (laughs) Haven't we just been mocking him? In fact, the gospel says in Matthew 27, 39, look on the screen, those who passed, passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. They would then come to the next petition of David in Psalm 22 because they all have it memorized. And in in verse 8 of Psalm 22, it says, He trusts in the Lord. They they say, let the Lord rescue him. Again, people are going to go, wait, what? What? Didn't the thief on the cross just say that a couple of hours ago? Yes, he did. Can you imagine the connection now, the astonishment? Look at Matthew 27, 43. This is the gospel version. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. It would lead them to the next petition of David they had memorized. This is verse 15 of Psalm 22. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. Can you see them grabbing each other? Wait a minute. Didn't Jesus just say he was thirsty? We find this in John 19, 28. Jesus said, I'm thirsty. It should dawn on us as we, it must have dawned on those witnessing the crucifixion Uh, what's going on here? And then Psalm 22, verse 16, note, they pierced my hands and feet. Are you kidding me? A guy wrote that a thousand years before Jesus? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Can we just say this out loud? We can conclude with absolute certainty that King David must be numbered among the prophets. This guy can see the future. Now, how much insight he had into the words that he actually wrote For this hymn in Psalm 22, we have no idea. My hunch would be that he didn't have any idea what he was talking about. It was probably as puzzling to him as it was to anyone singing the song. What are the lyrics to this song? It's so morbid. Why are we singing this in the worship? David goes, I don't know. These are just the words God gave me. In the middle of the night, I, I awoken and I started writing these words. Look at John chapter 20, verse 25. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hands into his side, I will not believe. This is the apostle Thomas. They come to the final petition. Look at Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And it just goes on and on in great detail. Can you see the Jews around the cross? Didn't the Romans just do this? Yes. Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 25, and they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. We've seen throughout the story, there's a, there's a lower story. This is where all the humans are interacting down here on the dirt, on the ground, on the ground floor with all these circumstances and dynamics and, and trauma and conflict and, and threats and life and death and all of this lower story is happening all the way through the narrative, all the way through the story. But we also know there's an upper story. There's a big picture. There's a big plan, a big vision that God has for the world. We've learned what this vision is from the Garden of Eden all the way to the place called heaven. We have learned each step of the way 
through all these narratives that God has a single purpose in mind for the world, and that is he wants to spend eternity with you. He wants to be in intimate communion and fellowship with you forever. He's prepared a place for us so that we can be with him. Where he is, we shall be also. Isn't that something? It's a great plan. And so the upper story, while, while we have the lower story in this moment where we, we see the conspiracy of both Jews and Romans working together to kill Jesus, they managed. But the upper story is that this was God's plan all along. He is the Messiah. He's the suffering servant. He's actually fulfilling prophecy. This shout of despair from Jesus is, isn't, a, isn't a cry for help. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. I'm here and this is why I was born. But the psalm doesn't end here. And all the Jews around the cross knew it. Every lament in the book of Psalms takes a turn. And this one is no exception. It starts with lament. It includes petitions and prayers, and then it makes a shift to a declaration of praise for the deliverance that's coming. Look on the screen at Psalm 22, verses 22 and 24. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. It's amazing. It's so powerful. Jesus is saying, look, I was not at any time forsaken by my father. The father has not at any time turned his face from me because I will be delivered from these circumstances. I will be delivered from death in just a few moments. This isn't the end of me. This is just the fulfillment of my work. God the Father was with Jesus. He held his hand. He held his heart through all of his suffering. We can make an easy application at this point by simply stating that good fathers, good dads, good fathers don't turn their backs on their children. They don't. few years ago, I was preaching in another city, another state. I got on this subject a little bit, and after the, the sermon, a man walked up to me. He was in his 70s, and he began to tell me this horrible story of his life and the circumstances when he was a young father, and the circumstances were unique. His story was unique. Everyone has a story, right? Everyone has a, everyone has a narrative We've, we've, all got a, we've all got issues in our lives. We all have had things happen to us. And this guy stood there because he was feeling bad, perhaps under conviction, that he had abandoned his children when they were young. Well, my job and, and my ex-wife, and he, you know, he had a story. And I could tell he was, he was hurting, he was suffering, because his children didn't turn out very well. He was estranged from them. And to this very moment, he's estranged from them. He was looking for some consolation. He was hoping that I would tell him, well, under those circumstances, I guess you had to do what you have to do. You abandon your young children. No. I'm the wrong guy to ask for that. You know, they don't let me do counseling here. 
If you approach me with some excuse about turning your back on your own children, don't look for sympathy from me. I'm not, I'm not that guy. You might find someone, maybe someone else has turned their back on their children, and the two of you can rationalize it together. But it's not going to come from me. I heard the man out. I tried to, I, I summoned all my pastoral empathy. I, you know, I just, you, I got to work it up. And, <laughs> and I said, are, are your children still living? She, he said, yes, they are. And I said, it's never too late to reclaim your fatherhood. That's your job now in your life. You're going to be dead soon. You have to reclaim your fatherhood. It's never too late to do the right thing. He said, well, my daughter hasn't spoken to me for years. She won't, she won't speak to me. And I said, you're going to have to figure that out. You've got to find out. You've got to pray about this. You've got to ask God to help you. And you've got to figure out a way for your daughter to even sit and listen to you for eight seconds so that you can apologize to her for not being there when she needed you. That's where you should start. And then spend the rest of your life trying to build the trust that you need with her so that when you tell her the things she needs to hear from you, she can hear them. They should let me do counseling, but they don't. So from the cross, Jesus is speaking of the resurrection, of his deliverance. You understand? He's saying, by referring to Psalm 22, in three days, y'all are going to see me again. I will rise from the dead. I will be delivered. But before the people could do anything about it, Jesus declared with one more, one more effort, the last thrust of his worn and beaten frame, he simply says, look at John 19, 20, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, let me just remind you, when Jesus says it is finished, it does not mean he is finished. Oh gosh, he's just getting started. The single Greek word he, here that he spoke when he says it is finished is tetelestai. Tetelestai has actually been found in papyrus receipts for taxes from the first century. As they've been recovered, they, they found the word tetelestai, and written across these, these tax receipts is that word, which simply means a phrase that we're all familiar with, paid in full. So when Jesus said it is finished, he meant paid in full. Everything required has been paid. All of the debts accumulated by every single one of us, the debt of our own sin and rebellion toward God, that's all been paid. It's finished. Paid in full. Glory to God. But there's more than that. The Jewish audience knew how Psalm 22 ended because they'd memorized the thing from the time they were children. Look on the screen at verse 31. It says, They will proclaim His righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. So who are the people yet unborn? Now, this is where you should start feeling encouragement. This is where you should start feeling hope. Because you are the people yet unborn. I'm the person yet unborn. David is saying that there will be a day, like today, where people who were not yet born 
will be born. And someone like me will stand up and declare the righteousness and the victory of Jesus Christ, secured for us at the cross. Wonderful. The entire psalm finishes with the phrase, he has done it. He has done it. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is a Hebrew word uh, that's pronounced hasa, and it means to, to complete or it's finished. Now, that's Psalm 22, and even a casual observer, if you actually believe this is a psalm written by David a thousand years before Jesus, you'd have to conclude, that's amazing. Well, that's more than amazing. That's a miracle. This is a guy who prophesied a thousand years before Jesus went to the cross all of the explicit details of what would happen that day. That's amazing. That's a miracle. But it doesn't stop there. We're all familiar, every one of us, with the next psalm, Psalm 23. Let's assume that David is still in a prophetic, prophetic idea, prophetic spirit. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And all the way to verse 4, he lead, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then, we, and then we find unfolding before us in Psalm 24. The first verse says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So the God we serve is the creator God. He's made everything. Verse 3, an interesting question. Psalm 24 who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? That's an interesting question, isn't it? And let's just use our sanctified imagination and just imagine that David is still in a prophetic spirit and he's still revealing things to us. When a question is asked, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. So who is it worthy to ascend to the hill of God, the throne of God, the presence of God, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart? Let me just uh, say this out loud. We're all disqualified. You're out, I'm out, we're all out. The one who's never followed an idol, or told a lie. Well, that's every one of us before lunch every day. So we're out. Verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Savior. Well, why would a person like this need to be vindicated, delivered, his reputation all cleaned up. Must be some special kind of person who has no sin and has suffered nonetheless, needing vindication from God. And then the verses 7 through 10 of Psalm 24. Let me put these on the screen. It says, lift up the gates, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory will come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. 
Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Now, what is going on? Again, might we use our imagination here? If Psalm 22 shows us the crucifixion in intimate detail, and Psalm 23 reminds us of the assurance that we have that God is with us no matter what, he leads us beside the still waters. He is, a, he is a God who is good, and he never leaves us nor forsakes us. Now, chapter 24 takes us into another realm. The questions of who, who is worthy, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, who may stand in the holy place. The holy place is a reference a reference that we find throughout Scripture. First, the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness, a place of worship, a center of worship. Then the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. This, this was a great place with outer gates and walls, and now you go in to the holy place and the most holy place. So the, the intimation is that someone has to go into this holy place and make sacrifice. Followed by these words, lift up the gates. So the king can come in. The king, you say, mighty, described as powerful, ascending to the hill of the Lord, the holy place, toward the throne of God. Can you imagine with me? Would you allow your imagination to be sanctified for a moment? That this is the experience, this is reality in the spiritual realm after Jesus has expired he breathes his last and he leaves his earth suit for a few days. And now he is in the spiritual realm and he's moving toward the hill of the Lord, the throne of God. Can you hear people noticing this in the eternal kingdom? He's back. The prince has returned. King's about to be crowned. The subjects of heaven began gathering from the four corners of the kingdom. Can you, can you imagine with me angels singing and dancing, the glory of God intensifying, approaching the unapproachable walls of the kingdom of God? Lots of people think that because they've been relatively good in this life that as soon as they die, they're just, you know, just going to walk right on into heaven. No, 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 no. You don't get into the eternal kingdom without credentials, without reference. The kingdom of heaven apparently is a walled city with gates. And an angel positioned on top of the wall, commissioned there to keep the doors of heaven shut, shut. And he sees this crowd, this light approaching. He hears the sound. And then suddenly, this procession, this parade, this, this grouping of maybe people and angels, this, this, uh, this procession emanating with light, Jesus now. Shortly after the end of the crucifixion, He's in this spiritual realm and He's moving in this procession all the way up to the gates of the eternal kingdom. This guard posted on the wall, and now a voice, perhaps an angelic voice in the procession, looking up and simply saying, lift up the gates, ye everlasting doors, 
And the king of glory will come in. That's verse 7 of Psalm 24. And the angel whose, whose job it is, whose commission it is, whose mandate is to keep the doors shut, shouts back. Verse 8, who is the king of glory? Again, the answer, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, so that the king of glory may come in. Can you hear him? Open the gates. <laughs> and again, this stunned angel on the wall. Verse 10, who is he? This king of glory? And they respond, the Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. <sighs> and suddenly, the gates of heaven are thrown open. And the word which was God and was with God and which became flesh and dwelt among men that came unto his own and his own received him not, that endured 30 years of waiting, subject to the laws and life, physics of this world, who endured three years of ministry, who endured the cross, who endured death, who endured the grave, suddenly enters back into the heaven from which he has come. And the pre-existent, co-eternal, second person of the Trinity, the Word, no longer flesh, but the King of glory, mighty in battle, he enters the halls of heaven. With the angels cheering, the throngs adoring, the Old Testament saints collected now and part of the throng. Can you see Abraham? Isaac and Jacob? Can you see Moses and Elijah holding on to each other and pointing? He's back. The prince has returned. <laughs> he finds God the Father Almighty sitting there on the throne of judgment. Before him is the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark. This is this wooden box that God instructed Moses to build in the wilderness. And upon it, these cherubim, called the mercy seat, contained therein was the law, the, the, the stone tablets of Moses containing the Ten Commandments. You can summarize the entire Old Testament law with this phrase, thou shalt not. And the Bible's clear about the law. It condemns all of us. If we have failed in one aspect of the law, we have failed in all. And so here the angels look down upon the ark now in this heavenly place, this eternal place. And essentially what the law does for all of us is condemn us. The judgment seat, again, not the tabernacle in the wilderness, not the tabernacle of Moses in the desert of Sinai. This is not the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. No, no. This, in this moment, is the tabernacle of heaven. This is a place not built with hands eternal in the heavens. This is, a, this is a cosmic reality forever hidden from us while we live in this three-dimensional world in which we are confined today, living in these earth suits, living in, in this world. This is a dimension of God. This is a perception of ultimate reality where Almighty God, who is a consuming fire, who is described as dwelling in light, who is over and over again considered unapproachable in his splendor, 
He is great beyond great. He is awesome beyond our comprehension. He is almighty God who cannot abide sin and rebellion and the thing that separates us from a relationship with him. And this is why he has sent his only son to die and to provide a perfect sacrifice. And now Jesus, in this cosmic place, comes walking up the center aisle, approaching his father. He has in his hands a golden bowl, and in it is the blood of an eternal sacrifice, his own blood. He lifts it before the father, and he says, this is everything required. And then he takes his own blood and he pours it over the top of the mercy seat. He empties the bowl, sets it aside, and then steps up to the platform of the throne and takes his place seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And at that point, a holy hush comes over the entire eternal kingdom of God. A holy hush. Every angel, every creature, every being, every person who has, who has passed in, in, into this eternal state, all of them now completely and totally quiet, coming under the realization that once and for all, redemption has been secured for the whole world. And that all of them now have hope for an eternal existence with this great and awesome God because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. Could I just mention good news? This is good news for all of us. Redemption has been secured. You have been bought with a price. The price of the very life of the very Son of God who has clean hands and a pure heart without spot or blemish and therefore worthy to become the perfect sacrifice sufficient for the redemption of the sins of the world. And the Bible makes clear to us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. And the scripture is clear that as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. John 1.12. You may be a person in the room today or within the sound of my voice online, and this is your day. Today is your day. Not to put it off, not, not another moment. Not to say someday. Not to say, not until, this or that, but today, you come as you are, just as I am, and say yes to this wonderful offer of life and hope provided by Jesus Christ. This is your day. For some of you, you've wandered away, you've strayed from a life of faith, and you realize today's when you need to come home. So you need to take the next step in your journey toward Jesus. And God stands with open arms, ready to receive you.
and to include you once again in his family. So you be encouraged. God did not desert Jesus on the cross. He has not and will not desert you in your circumstances either. You be encouraged today. God is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to pray with folks today, and this is your day and you know it, to say yes to Jesus. You've never before in your life comprehended what God has has done, the extreme love that God has extended toward you by offering his very own son. You've come to terms with that today, and you realize your need for him. And so I want to pray with you. Again, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. So I want you to pray this prayer out loud after me. Would you do it? Just out loud, right after me, wherever you are. If you're, if you're at home, if you're in your car, wherever you are, if you're in, the, in this room, just pray right after me, out loud. Are you ready? Dear Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner. I've made lots of mistakes. But I believe that Jesus Christ gave his life for my sins. Lord Jesus, forgive me of all the things I've done wrong. Come into my life. I accept you now. I receive you into my heart. I want to live for you. I want to know you. I want to serve you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can live every day in an honorable way. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for me. In your name I pray. Amen. Now, Lord, I pray for others who need to take their next step to come home, to come to their senses, to return to the hope and the peace that you alone can provide for them. So, friends, it's the same process. Repent of your sins. Invite Jesus back into your life. He'll answer that prayer every time. I pray for the person who's living in a cloud right now. You're in a fog. You're confused. Even in this moment, you're not sure what to do. You may think God has turned his face from you, but let me reassure you today, he has not. Receive good news today. Receive the hope for your soul right now. Come home to Jesus. Lord, thank you for the grace to take these steps necessary today. We give you praise and thanks for all you've done for us. In your holy name we pray. And everyone said, would you stand with us?